Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, Kai. Hello, Gary. Oh, so we're, yes, we're whispering this week. Yeah, uh, whispering Gary Kemp. You're whispering Guy Pratt, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, was, I, just, I just had a whisper, actually. It was delicious. I was just trying um, to get that intimacy that this man had, you know, growing up. That was the key, wasn't it? He was, yeah. he was there. So completely different to every other broadcaster as well. Because our whole thing that we were used to, oh, the, the, yeah. yeah. It was like, you know, when you got in trouble at school and the geography teacher said, come and see me, and you'd go in and see him. But he was a really, just a really nice guy, and he understood you. Yeah, understood the issues you were dealing with, and you thought, "I've got a connection somehow with with institutions." And and Bob was the link. That's that's a really really good way of putting it. Really good way of putting it. And um, impossible to say for yeah, anyone of our generation just how important the old grey whistle test was. It was literally yeah. this lonely outpost on TV, wasn't it? Yeah, so, of course. And and you know, this was the chance to hear to see the album bands. You know, the bands yeah. that just weren't on top of the pops or weren't being played on Radio One really before ten p.m. at night. I guess the you know with the John Peel show. But now, I so much to talk about. So many of these great artists, and also got to say one of the reasons behind this podcast, which was when I brought the old Grey Whistle Test box set on the tour bus and we watched it. And when we were all just talking about bands, and of course, Nick had that fantastic insight. That's kind of where we decided we wanted to do this. That's exactly right. So let's get him on. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. This was great, guys. I, I, it's so great to talk to two guys that have done this. Well, it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. You know, what people forget about Bowie is that he was such a kind man. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. I know you're musicians, but you've been more professional than a lot of journalists. Remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. To, to get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. <laughs> Bob. Sorry, I couldn't find the, uh, the email. So I'm sorry I'm a little bit late. What a pleasure to have you on. A, a, a thrill and an honour. I must say, Bob, we've been sitting here waxing lyrical about what a seminal part of our sort of musical formation you were. Oh, well, thank you. A, a simple question first off, because I can see all those CDs behind you. Yes. And yeah. I've seen that image before on your Instagram site. Of course, David Hepworth famously has all his vinyl behind him. Is, there is vinyl somewhere in the room. There is, it, yes, Bob. yes. Not a lot here. What, what's the criteria for stuff to make it into that room? Uh, oh, well, this is the studio room, so pretty much... Everything that can fit is in here um, <laughs> is really the criteria as what I've got space for. What albums would you say would go in storage and other ones stay on the shelf? Oh, the ones I'm most fond of are the ones on the shelves here. I, I've got another little section in the house itself for the really valuable stuff. So, uh, yeah. What would you say is your most valuable or treasured? 
my most treasured is my original vinyl copy of Forever Changes by Love, uh, because that was given oh. to me by John Peel, uh, put into my hand uh, in uh, the end of 1967. When he gave you that amazing break, didn't he? Yeah. Tell us about that. It's, it's really hard to describe the feeling I felt as a child, really, growing up in the rock and roll era. I was um, 11 years old when I first heard Elvis, when I first bought my first ever single, Diana by Paul Anker, and then discovered Jerry Lee Lewis and Eddie Cochran, Buddy Holly, the Everly Brothers, uh, Little Richard, Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, those names, you know, you're listening to those brand new records in real time. It was an incredible thing. And um, just holding 45s in my hand to me was a magical experience. And um, I started holding little record hops in my parents' cellar in Ardington Road in Northampton. And I used to invite my friends round and I used to play them the new, whatever new single, Duane Eddie or Johnny and the Hurricanes or whatever it was that I just got. And I loved, absolutely loved seeing the expression on their faces. And even then I knew that what I'm doing now is what I wanted to do. I didn't know how I could do it or what it exactly was. And it wasn't until I moved to London in 66 and then heard John, John Peel on the Perfume Garden on Radio London that I realised that he crystallised everything that I'd been thinking about up to that point. And um, I really wanted to meet him. And Tony Elliott, who was running a university magazine called Unit, um, had asked me to do some writing uh, from London. And I asked him to set up an interview with John Peel. So I went over to John's house in Fulham and that's where I also met Mark Boland. Yeah. And so, oh, oh. and, and John, <laughs> John, John, Mark was, um, it, it was the absolute classic thing because John and I were doing the interview and Mark was sitting cross-legged on the floor on a Persian rug, strumming away <laughs> the acoustic guitar with his corkscrew hair. And uh, yeah. And anyway, John took me under his wing. He really did. Was it, was it the UFO club or Middle Earth that was happening? Middle Earth, well, Earth. both. Uh, my big, you know, my favourite was Middle Earth. This massive, great sort of warehouse of basements underneath, on the corner, just opposite the square. Covent Garden. In Covent Garden, yeah. And um, I used to just basically move in there for the whole weekend, pretty much. Liquid light shows on the walls. Um, Keith Anger films projected onto walls. And, oh, it was just... I just thought it was incredible seeing bands like Traffic and Pink Floyd, Soft Machine. Yeah. John actually was the DJ there as well with Jeff Dexter, post Pirates. Jeff, yeah. Oh, Jeff, yeah. Of course, yeah. Pipe smoking Jeff. Yes. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was just a magical time. Anyway, John took me under his wing. I became his sort of protege. I became a Peel protege. And he introduced me to, crucially, to a Radio One producer called Jeff Griffin. And Jeff took me in to do a pilot for Radio One. Uh, and it was a long process. It took nearly 18 months to organize the pilot, record the pilot, submit the pilot, and then get a, a final yes from the BBC, which opened the door for me to sit in for John for four programs in August and September 1970. So that's how it all got started. Uh, were you the first person there who, who hadn't come from Pirate? Pretty much. Yeah, I think Noel Edmonds was uh, 
another. He'd come by Radio Luxembourg, but even he had got previous radio experience where I come from nowhere. I'd never done a radio show before I'd sat in for John. Or had to get your sea legs. <laughs> you all had to get my sea Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but what was it about presenting? It simply was that you'd been given this, the gift of all of this particularly wonderful music uh, by John, and you wanted to pass that on. You talk about having these record hops at your house. And I think people forget the rarity and the scarcity of great music in those days yeah. and how difficult it was to come about it. I mean, you know, there's a, we could talk about this interview later on. There's a fascinating bit where you speak to John Lennon uh, in New York and John says, you know, I want to know what's happening in England. Some, my, my office just sent me the top 10 over <laughs> now because we take it for so for granted that yeah. we find music so easily. Yeah, it's true. And, you know, same with, with uh, media in general, there are only three, TV channels at the point that we started the old grey whistle test, um, you know, BBC One, BBC Two and ITV, that was it. You know, the multi-channel uh, um, internet world that we have now just did not exist in those days. In fact, whistle test even predated video. Video players, video recorders didn't really come into general public use until the late mid 1970s so uh well it was around 98 it was the radio rentals when they introduced the when people could rent them i remember wasn't it, it was about i remember the first time it was announced it was at some award show and kenny everett said so you're all recording this on your radio rentals vhs yeah and that was the first time it was like in part of established part of popular culture yeah that's right and i mean you know our, our producer ben was talking to us beforehand about how his dad used to record uh, on vhs the old grey whistle test and i said well that has to be annie nightingale that that, that can't be bob because you left in 78 i think and, and and that was actually the brilliance of it because all music i remember hearing whatever we heard on old grey whistle test or on top of the pops we that would be it we couldn't hear it again we couldn't the see first, it yeah yeah I mean, you were, it was such a look it was you it was it's going to say, you know, we were kids discovering music and there was this one outpost on TV, like sort of way off. And, you know, once a week there was the old grey whistle test and it was incredible. It was such a lonely furrow you, you yes. found. It was, it was amazing. Well, it, it was it was TV by appointments. It, it really was, you know, and that was the great thing at the time that because it was the only one, because really the only way to experience it was watching it live. It became a gathering point um, for sort of like-minded musical freaks, you know, late in the evening. It, it, it had a kind of conspiratorial aspect to it yeah. in that respect. And um, yeah, but I mean, but Whistle Test, what I'm doing now, really, it is what I was doing in my mum and dad's cellar all those years ago. I'm, I, sharing, I'm yeah, sharing I'm sharing music. music. I'm the sort of, uh, I, I'm the middle person going musician, audience audience musician you know making that introduction mm -hmm. and then stepping back and and letting that magic happen well let's not jump in too soon into the old groves test because i just i just talk about you as you were an only child weren't mm. you you talk about how important the radiogram was for you you know so you know i've got three kids in the house right now who all, all all they do is fight and scuffle around and shout at each other and but as an only child i guess that was that was a great sort of you know that with other people in the room came through the radio yeah and thinking back on it uh not that i felt it necessary particularly at the time but it was a fairly lonely childhood in so much as i was an only child that transport was not as easy in those days uh, my parents didn't have a car even until i was about 14 years old so 
I spent a lot of time by myself and a lot of that time was spent with my now growing record collection. But as a small child was spent with my mom uh, listening to the radio because she absolutely loved the radio. And um, there was a program in those days called Listen With Mother. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, and I was that child who listened to listen with mother with his mother. You've said this before about that how that was already golden age of radio because even for Gary and I, it was we grew up in the TV world. We'll probably never understand the significance of radio back then. It was literally the one output. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It was the doorway to the world. It, it was also um, a doorway into your imagination. You know that amazing phrase that describes it really well. You know, radio was the theater of the mind uh, and you could just let your imagination run, e even in terms of the voices that you were hearing. So in other words, the DJs, because you never see them um, until Top of the Pops, they wouldn't be on television with the possible exception of, of David Jacobs and, and Pete Murray maybe, but, oh, yeah, yeah. but you wouldn't see them. So you would be, you could create in your mind a picture of this person who was talking to you on the radio. That one-to-one -one is something that I've always tried, not even tried to maintain, it's, it's, it's part of my DNA in terms of my broadcasting, that it's the intimacy, even, even on mm -hmm. a wide, wide, wide scale, even on a high tempo program, you can still create that feeling that that person is broadcasting to you, just to you. And that's what I've always wanted to try and achieve. One of my earliest memories is of a radiogram. It's, we had one in the house. And, um, and I remember my dad coming home from work one lunchtime and we used to, we used to call it dinner. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, and, and going to the radiogram, putting his head into it, to getting the radio station on because the Cuban Missile Crisis was yes, happening. Gosh, I and, 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 and I remember him saying, you know, there could be another war. Mm. And um, this, uh, you know, the, the, so the, the, you know, the radio had all of these other attributes. It, it wasn't just teaching us. It was also, it suddenly, you know, the world was opening up. Absolutely. So America, yeah. America, the great beast that we were all listening to. Yes. I was playing uh, a lot of rugger in those days and I was playing for my school first 15. And it was a Wednesday afternoon at three o'clock. And I remember us running out onto the pitch and looking to the west to see if the sky had lit up yet, because we were expecting, <laughs> you know, the bomb to go off at any moment. I really remember yeah. that so vividly. I was standing on the pitch wow. thinking, is it going to be now? You know, because they'd said they'd given this certain time and it was about the time of our kickoff that day. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, it didn't stop your kickoff then. That's been... But actually going back to your, your earlier point, though, I think it's very interesting what you say about creating this intimacy uh, of doing a radio show of where, the, where, where it's like the audience think you're talking just to them. Because in the same, that's what great music does as well, isn't it? Yes. That's the point where the truly great song is you think they're talking to you. Well, so yes. I mean, great song. lyrics sort of write your yeah. life, don't they? Uh, yeah. And that's one of the things about country music that's so appealing because country music the lyrics of country music songs write the lives of the fans who are buying those records, if you like. It's such a big thing with country that, that country music does reflect the feelings and the emotions of, of its fans. Actually, one of the funniest things I've ever heard about country music was Grant Black, Don Black's son, who's a lyricist. He came up with this brilliant gag once. He said, I've just started writing reverse country. 
the reverse car. Yeah, what's that? He said you get the kids back, you get the car back, you get the house back. <laughs> yeah, you get a new dog. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but you give no up surprise. drinking. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can see we're going to jump back and forth in this show, but it's there's no surprise in a way to me that you you your love of country has become so to the fore in the last 20 years really uh, because that that period that you started working with the with the old grey whistle test was really the period of this sort of autobiographical singer songwriter from america and the west coast sound wasn't yeah, it with, it was with jack brown and 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 you know Joni mitchell etc and that seemed to be part of what you were also plugging into that suited your need for intimacy didn't it <laughs> Well, I mean, when you think about it, you know, Blonde on Blonde, the Bob Dylan album, 65, recorded in Nashville with Nashville musicians, 68, obviously Nashville Skyline, uh, with Johnny Cash. There was um, that wonderful period of country rock with the Eagles and Pure Prairie League and um, New Riders mm -hmm. of the Purple Sage and all of those. Harvest by Neil Young, recorded in Nashville. Willing by Little Feet, country track, you know, I mean, Country music was all around us. It's just that we didn't necessarily know that that's what it was, if that makes sense. You know, rock and roll, if you like, the two feed lines into rock and roll were, on the one hand, blues and R&B via Little Richard, Pat Domino, uh, Chuck Berry and the others, and country music. You know, the person who had his foot in each camp, one foot in each camp, was Elvis, because that's all right. Yeah, it came from the blues, Arthur Big Boy Crudup. That was a blues record. Blue Moon of Kentucky had originally been recorded by Bill Monroe and his Bluegrass Boys. So that was the country. Elvis had a foot in each on each side of that fence. But the, the countryside, then, you add to that the Everly Brothers, Buddy Holly, Ricky Nelson, Duane Eddy, uh, Eddie Cochran. They, they, not so much Eddie Cochran, maybe, but you know, the, Jerry Lee Lewis, you know, they, they, these were Southern boys. This was country music. It was kind of rockabilly now, but with a Bill Haley, you know, they were all rooted in country music. So even though I didn't know it in the fifties, those early records of mine, all of them, all the big hits were big hits in the country charts as well. So yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't until yeah. all these things sort of synthesized when Radio 2 asked me to do the country show. I mean, to start with, I wasn't even sure I, you know, whether I was qualified to do it. But once I got to Nashville and realized that what Nashville is about is the song. So the parallel between, you know, the singer-songwriters in Nashville and people like Neil Young and Joni Mitchell is exactly the right parallel to draw. And then, then you add a pedal steel guitar and bam, you've got country music. Yeah, I remember, I remember the early 70s as well. The DJ that a lot of uh, people would listen to who were into that stuff was Charlie Gillett. Yeah. Yes, of course. What station was Charlie on? Well, when I knew Charlie in, in a little later, he was on uh, GLR, which was the BBC station for London. Uh, in fact, when I was on GLR in the mid 90s, the lineup at that moment on that station was absolutely fantastic uh, because it, it, it was Johnny Walker, uh, Charlie Gillett, um, Gary Crowley, myself, Chris Evans was on there for a little while, Danny Baker. Um, 
it, the, the lineup was sensational. Yeah. It really was. And I, so that early seventies was the sort of the you know I remember the six formers wearing double denim, and it was it was suddenly a, a, it was all about the, the the American country scene. You're right, and the Little Feet were obviously a happening band as well. Yeah, and the Doobie Brothers. You know, the Doobies. There was a wonderful yeah. country yeah. Um, tribute album made to the Doobie Brothers a few years ago with people like Brad Paisley on it. So, yeah, I mean, the influence of country music on the music that we were playing on the Old Grey Whistle Test was, was pretty profound, actually. Let's just spin back to the to 60s and early 70s. And I'm just sort of interested in this moment when the singles chart became uncool and the album chart became mm-hmm. cool. And this kind of idea that maybe kids that were into you know buddy holly or the beatles or you know was suddenly now growing up and wanting to wanted a little bit more intelligence in their music what was that moment do you remember the yeah what, what changed oh the I world mean, it, you can say it with one album title sergeant pepper sergeant right. pepper drove a wedge through everything um we we'd had signposts towards that before uh say blonde on blonde pet sounds the Pet Sounds album by the Beach Boys was very important because that gave Paul McCartney the idea that an album could be more than just a you know a row of tracks. That there there could be you could thread tracks together in some way that you could create a, a, a concept. Really, Sergeant Pepper pushed the boundaries of production out to the absolute limits absolutely as far as it could go and the Beatles were phenomenally lucky all the all the component parts just fell into place in such a magical way I mean they couldn't have done it without George Martin Um, and George Martin couldn't have done it had he not had the production experience that he'd had previously in terms of what you know working with the goons and uh, Peter Sellers and some of the comedy things and jazz things that he'd worked on before uh, being a great music arranger too i remember when i spoke to john and i I was talking to him about the relationship that the beatles had with george martin and john was saying well well we'd we'd sort of say to george well we want this thing to go uh -uh," and uh uh you know and george would say well i think i know john what we can do to you know and 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 like he, he gave specifically the example of the radio dialing in at the end of i am the walrus where John couldn't believe it that somehow George had hooked up this radio when they were doing the mixing into the desk. So it was literally on a fader. And as they did the mix, they just twiddled the, the dial. And what you heard live was what went on to the record. And that was it. Wow. So George was able to provide all the creative input that the Beatles were demanding of him. And uh, Sergeant Pepper changed everybody's concept of what pop music could be. It was only a year later that albums overtook singles as the most popular form of, uh, of music delivery in, in the UK. And it was all completely to do with Sergeant Pepper, because then that released bands like Pink Floyd, Soft Machine, Iron Butterfly. <laughs> so, oh, so suddenly you were getting bands making you know one track go across the whole side of an album and uh, things like this and so by the time you got to the early 70s the album as as an experiment was an accepted way i mean even things like rainbow and curved air by terry riley i don't know whether you know oh, yeah yeah, that, that, yeah, 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 course, yeah absolutely that was very much a forerunner of the giorgio moroder brian Eno. Uh, yeah yeah absolutely so sergeant pepper was 
that was it. That everything changed after Sergeant Pepper. When did the BBC decide that that was a direction they needed to go in, or how? Or did you persuade them? Oh God, I wish I I, I have absolutely <laughs> no influence over BBC thinking at all. <laughs> um, the BBC started Radio One in response to huge pressure to you know when the government took pirate radio off off the air in the mid 1960s we were listening to highly energized radio pumped at us from boats moored just outside the three mile limit uh, uh you know those a maritime they, the boats were in international waters in other words so therefore outside legal restrict british legal restrictions beaming pop music into the uk so um that's where so many of the DJs that then found their way onto Radio One got their starts. You know, Tony Blackburn, Johnny Walker, uh, at the time people like David Lee Travis, um, they all came across from Pirate Radio. Into Which was amazing, I'm saying those pirate stations, that's an amazing amount of vision and, and investment for people to make to buy, you know, who bought the boats? I mean, who? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, Ryan O'Reilly was the was the guy with the vision. He was the one who started Radio mm -hmm. Caroline, and immediately, you know, everybody realised that commercially this could be incredibly successful because once the Beatles had triggered sort of teen mania uh, in the UK, and all the bands that followed began to sort of funnel onto into recording studios. There wasn't really anywhere for this music to get played. Radio Luxembourg, yes, but you know the signal was, night. was awful yeah. at night. Yeah, the light, the BBC light program wasn't fulfilling this demand in any way. So Ronan O'Reilly created Radio Caroline uh, to play this pop music to the teenagers twenty-four hours a day, and they absolutely—I mean, it was incredible the reaction. I mean, I—I I lived with. Pirate Radio, 20, pretty much 24 hours a day. I couldn't, I was hearing all the brand new records absolutely, sometimes two or three weeks before they came out because um, all the record labels would arrive at Curzon Street, which is where Radio London had its offices to deliver the latest to who acetate, literally, which would be shipped out to the boat. And that there was no restriction on the DJs of what they played, none whatsoever. So they could put on anything on air and they did. So you were, you knew that you were part of something really, really exciting. By and, and that's when music started to be called as there was underground music. Because before, before, you know, prog, I think, is an invention that came much later. It was, first of all, it was underground, then it was progressive, you know. Yes. And there was a sense that music can be more intelligent. It that doesn't have to be paperback. You know, it doesn't have to be, you know, cheap thrills. Yes. You know, this could be neat. Radio One started got going john john peel was 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 finding a, a i don't know a, a fairly uh he was sort of clinging just about managing to cling on john at, at the time he'd started on radio one but there wasn't really sort of a place yet for him and his imagination and and that particular uh style of djing it was only about probably a year or two or even three years later that album music was becoming more and more important. Sergeant Pepper had set the scene. Now you've got bands experimenting on both sides of, of the Atlantic with how far they could push their music ideas and the technology and everything else. So when it came to, okay, so in 1970, 
the BBC created this strip of programmes called Sounds of the Seventies, which reflected yeah. this new progressive slash underground slash album uh, style of music. Um, and it was five one-hour programmes a week. Um, and I started doing the Monday programme soon after that strip had been launched. Meanwhile, on television, Mike Appleton had started a programme called Colony Pop, which was an album show, initially featuring just one album a week. Then that morphed into a show called Disco 2, and then that became the old Grey Whistle Test. So, so the BBC was, was moving with the demand to show and expose this increasingly interesting, complex, intelligent music, whether that was that it was complex musically or that lyrically it was very, very interesting. And once you began to explore the lyrics of people like Jenny Mitchell and Neil Young and, uh, mm -hmm. and Elton and people, David, David Bowie, then, you know, clearly you're, you're moving into poetry, you know, in a way that we hadn't necessarily heard it before. What's ironic is that, is that for all that, that the show was named, comes from a phrase which relates to the exact opposite type of music, which is the catchy pop single from the Brill Building. Yes, that's right. And, and, <laughs> it, it, yeah, it's true. Exactly. And it, yeah. Very different from colour me pop. Exactly. Yeah. I was like, the word pop would be anathema to the audience. Yeah. You were looking, that word's got to be out, isn't it? Yeah. Well, but it, it's still... rock, rock had such gravitas to it. Yeah. Didn't it? Even rock and roll was, you know. But pop, it was still pop in 68, you know. Um, it hadn't become rock yet. It was it was moving in that direction, or it hadn't become prog yet. Uh, I mean, one one of the great things about the the, the mid sixties, and you really have to say this, the pre Sergeant Pepper moment, is that there there weren't the sort of genre boundaries on music that that became prevalent in the seventies. Mm -hmm. I mean, you look at the charts, say I don't know, let's say nineteen sixty five. You've got all the British pop bands, as they were in those days, you know, the Beatles, the Stones, the Who, the Kinks, Small Faces, all of those bands. You've got the, the American equivalents, the Birds, probably the Four Seasons, uh, the Beach Boys. You've got Phil Spector and the Wall of Sound. You've got Stax with Otis and Wilson Pickett, the Atlantic record label, Tamla Motown. You know, you've got a really wide range of music that was basically all under the same banner. You were buying mm. singles and it didn't matter, you know, the genre uh, definition that there wasn't one that separated those records. You had them all in your collection. Whereas once we got into the early 70s, as people began to sort of look at music in a slightly different way, people then, and you know, possibly I, I was somewhat, uh, you know, doing this myself a little bit over intellectualizing it, you know, that it became sort of more than the, I, I don't know what it was, that the rock critics suddenly became very, very powerful. And music writing became ludicrously pretentious. Yes, it did. Kind of. Yeah, it really <laughs> did. And, and a lot of the, yeah. you know, not just the writers, but the photographers at, at the time regarded those, uh, themselves on an equal footing with the rock stars they were photographing or writing yeah, about. Yeah. And that's, Chris Welsh that's or, just madness. Yeah. It was one of the Melly. It was one of the Melly Maker journalists who coined "Whispering yes. Bond," wasn't it? Michael Watts, yeah, yeah, who who was in the studio in the very early days, and um, I'd always seen myself in a recording in the radio studio. I'd always closed my eyes and 
visualize myself being there. So when I got there, I was really comfortable being in a radio studio. I just absolutely loved it. Television studio, I never even thought of any likelihood of me being on TV. So when Mike called me and took me into BBC Television Centre and I sat there in that studio, I was looking around myself being genuinely intimidated by my surroundings and not at all sure that I was going to be able to do this, this job. You know, I did learn. I was learning how to do it in front of a national television audience. I mean, you know, I, I made a lot of mistakes in the very early days and got quite a lot of things wrong. But gradually I began to learn how to do this and learn how to relax into it. But in those early days, I was genuinely quite timid in the studio and uh, gone right back into myself. There was also a, an active decision to try and make the programme um, intimate in the way that I'd, I saw radio. So between all those various different factors, I was very, very quietly spoken. And, and my, my, Michael Watts coined the phrase whispering Bob Harris, and it's stuck ever since. It just stuck. You know, to me, to me, though, watching you as a kid, there was a sort of, you were intellectually comfortable in this, in, in the genre, in the medium that you'd chosen to adore and love, mm. which was intelligent music. Mm. I found that really aspirational as a young working class boy looking at you. There was something learned about you and trustworthy. I think tr that's what it really comes yeah, down yeah. to. The audience trusted you. I'll go along with that 100%. Yeah, I'll take that, definitely. Because, <laughs> you know, as gradually I did learn how to do the job, obviously you get better at it. I remember talking a little while ago to um, uh, Timothy B. Schmidt, uh, you know, from the Eagles, who was saying to me, you know, that he'd been doing it for 45 years. And if you don't get good at the job after doing that, it that long, you know, and that was the thing as, as I began to learn how to do it, and I got better and better at doing whistle test. It was as simple as that. But the one thing that the program genuinely had and all of us felt was the strength of the show was its integrity. We never did anything we didn't want to do. The BBC gave us license and gave us freedom to put out a show that we felt was right and we did you know i mean i would bow to mike's opinion in terms of what would be right for television and he would acknowledge my opinion in terms of what would be right musically so as time went by mike and i established fantastic working relationship and wonderful wonderful friendship that we just completely trusted each other and therefore then as a unit uh, as, a, as a working partnership of producer-presenter, that became quite sort of awesomely strong. We would, uh, you know, the bands would come in and every single time a new band came into Whistle Test, they'd be absolutely amazed at the freedom and the support they would get from the programme the second they came in the door. The whole thing was geared to the music. It was geared to the musicians. It was geared to, to those records we loved. So that was the integrity of the program i think that was its massive strength and i think also that's why you know over a period of time people did begin to really trust it and when you think now of the numbers that we used to get the audience figures you know at its absolute peak around 76 it was about five and a half million a, a week now five and a half million in in nowadays terms 
that's a huge audience. Yeah. And particularly for a show that's that's sort of, I don't know, 10.30 on a Tuesday night. It's almost unheard of. So yeah. we knew we were doing something right. We really did. And I think Worcester Test was... Um, number one TV show, Melody Maker and Sound, for about seven years running, you know, so we really... I think I said one of my votes in. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But also, because the thing is, now looking back, is that on Whistle Test, you have, you got literally definitive performances. There are things which you now look back, you know, for instance, Roxy Music doing Lady Tron. That's the mm. Lady Tron. Mm. That's it. The New York Dolls, the, there's, there's, you know, wait... There are there are bands. Hocus, Hocus band. Pocus by Pocus. Yes. Pocus. Yeah, exactly. That's what. Yeah, that, that's the one you got a number one. You made a number one single out of that, didn't you? Well, Hocus Pocus. The, the focus um, appearance was when we absolutely knew for the first time that we had an audience. Literally, because you know, the focus appeared on the show, and the demand then for their music over the next ten days, two weeks was was so intense that Polydor, their record label, had to devote the whole of their pressing plant to meeting the demand for Focus uh, vinyl. <laughs> All the singles went into the charts. The albums went into the charts. It was crazy. It was absolutely mad crazy. We had no idea that the programme had become that influential. But at that moment, we realised, oh, my God, you know, we, we are. And you have a, the, the, the other aspect of that is that you do, one does feel a responsibility to that. You know, you know you can't mess around this is a program that people are looking to for exposure to to this kind of music so and we took that that responsibility was a, an exciting responsibility that we took very seriously burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping and that extends to their outdoor collection their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Now, I want to talk about some of your interviews. Famously, you had, you know, one of the great John Lennon interviews. It was Elton John who helped set that up because Elton and I were very good friends. And I'd, I'd seen him at a launch reception for a single by Labelle called Lady Marmalade. And uh, he was just leaving. I was just arriving. And he was telling me that he was off to do some dates in America, that he was going to do a run of nights at New York City at Madison Square Garden. And so I said to Elton, ah, well, when you see John, because he, he said, and, and I, he said, don't tell anybody, but I think John Lennon's going to join me on stage. And of course he did. It was the famous performance of whatever gets you yeah, through yeah. the night. So uh, I said, well, when you see John, could you say to him that we'd love to do something with him on the old Grey Whistle Test? And literally about four or five days later, I'm sitting in the, uh, at the office next to Mike Appleton. And the phone in the office rings and Mike answers it. And I can hear this voice on the other end of the line going, is Bob Harris there, please? 
and uh, Mike goes, and who's calling? You know, it's John Lennon from New York. And, and <laughs> so Mike hands over to, hey, hey, John, said, I've been talking to Elton. You know, he said that you'd love us to do something. He said, well, why don't you just come over, come over? So I've got the rock and roll album coming out. I'm back in New York. Why don't you just come over and we'll do some filming together? So that's literally, that that's how informal it was. And uh, so we went over and we saw, we filmed with John on the day that he and Yoko had discovered that she was pregnant with Sean. So John was so happy. And it was just one of those things where you've got two people who just get on really, really well. And John and I just got on. I mean, forget that he's John Lennon and I'm the, 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 the host of this rock TV show or whatever. As two guys, we just hit it off immediately. But yet his guard is down in a way you never see. Absolutely. You've never seen interviews. Yeah. Yeah. Paul Gabuccini said to me a number of times that, you know, he thinks it's probably one of the best interviews ever with John because John was so relaxed. That was the key thing. Yeah. He was just totally. so relaxed. He was usually de quite defensive, wasn't he? He could be. He yeah. to, well, yeah. and quite not surprisingly, story, considering yeah. what he'd been through in the late 60s and early 70s yeah, in, in America in particular. But now we just he, we were just sitting there chatting. And it was lovely. And I think, you know, the other thing about it was, if you remember, there was only one camera. There was just one camera. A couple of times afterwards, I did a couple of what, what were called cutaways where the camera would they'd turn the camera around and I'd ask the questions cold. And so because you've got John's face, that's the only thing you visually that you've got to concentrate on. It's and what's interesting is when you said, you know, uh, do you regret? Um, um, how do you sleep? And, and you, you sensed a little bit of shame. Yeah, in you did. You can just, the expressions on John's face, to see him just concentrate on him, told you as much about him as the words he was speaking. I thought, you know, nowadays that, that, that interview, no doubt, would have been cut to bits. But there, it was just one camera and it rolled and that was it. And, and there's a lot to be said for that way of doing things. I know it goes completely against the grain and it's very old school, old fashioned, no doubt people would say, but there, there's a great virtue in having a camera really explore a subject in that way. What was that program? Freeman face to face, face to face. face, to face. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Freeman, yeah. Can I just David? explore a paradox that I'm, I'm interested in generally? And it comes out in that John Lennon interview where he wants his green card He's talking to you about how great America is and how different America is. But at the same time, he hates America. So there's this dichotomy between the hatred that your generation felt for the politics and for the human rights issues and for, the, you know, the nuclear war potentially. And at the same time, a great love for the place. And how do you, how did that balance itself? As in a way that you could say the same about like, right now 2021 yeah uh, offers the same contradictions and particularly for me being the supporter uh, of a lot of music from the south from the southern states you know mm -hmm. um but as was then and as is now you you i suppose you have to separate the politics from the culture uh, i know that it, it's not the easiest thing necessary to do but john like myself and like my whole generation really, was the rock and roll generation. We were the kids who were buying all those American records. We didn't have anything equivalent 
in the UK particularly. Yeah, there was Rock Island Line by uh, Lonnie Donegan and then Cliff Richards' Move It and then Shaking All Over by Johnny Kidd and Pirates. But I mean, you're talking about three records spanning five or six years when America was pumping rock and roll around the world. And so, you know, it wasn't just rock and roll either. It was the movies in those days, Marlon Brando, James Dean, then, you know, Marilyn Monroe, uh, then as you went into the 60s, really iconic American figures. I know I am touching on politics, but John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King. But it was the culture of America. It was American music that fired me and still does. I still absolutely love American music. But for John, being the recipient of the horror uh, of political right wing political opposition, you know, Nixon loathed John Lennon. He really did because he saw him. The FBI were on him, weren't they, the whole time? Yeah, yeah. I mean, bug tailed. Yeah, yeah, that thing that John was saying about it sounded sort of um, that it's almost a figment of his imagination. You know, when he was saying, "My phone was tapped. I I get followed everywhere," but it was true. He really did. You know, Um, Nixon was out to get him, and that's why John was stuck in New York as well, or stuck in the states because he knew that were he to come back to the UK he'd never get back into America again, not while Nixon was in the White House anyway. Nixon was a great friend of Elvis's and vice versa. Made him a drugs marshal, didn't he? Yes. Or gave him a badge. Right, that's right. That's right. And uh, Elvis was- Probably off his head on on uppers and downers. Yeah. (laughs) But he was apparently, Elvis had been up all night. And then then at at about 6 a.m. in the morning, he had this idea that he'd like to go and and see Nixon and and ask to become the drugs marshal. Yes, yeah. It's crazy, isn't it? And, and, And Nixon had detailed Elvis to gather as much information about John Lennon as he possibly could. I mean, yeah, the, 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 when, when they met each other for the first time in LA, I think it was 65, it was, it was hate at first sight. I mean, you know, and for John, it was a very disillus- disillusioning moment because he loved Elvis, Elvis's records. Gene Vincent, Bebop Alula, Elvis Presley, those were John's big template sounds. Uh, and then so when he met Elvis to discover he was a right-wing Southern bigot, it was a big shock, a big, big shock. And equally, you know, Elvis saw John Lennon as being this upstart Liverpudlian know-it-all who'd, who'd taken his crown, basically. The Beatles had usurped Elvis and he was resentful as hell. It, it was the meeting that was destined to fail. Yeah, We're talking now about a level of political clout and, import- and total cultural importance from musicians, which has never existed since, you know, I mean... The Clash could only dream of being, you know. Well, I mean, it is, it is an interesting thing that, that, that somebody said to me the other day, where have all the protest singers gone? You know, when you think that actually in the 60s, we had life pretty good. I mean, we really did. Yeah. The post-war austerity had evaporated. You know, we, we're in this moment of you've never had it so good. Um, live now, pay later. Uh, we were getting freedoms that generations before us could have only college grants. Of. Yeah, <laughs> and yet there we there we were with with protest singers in the middle of it all, saying how horrendous it all was. <laughs> what was what was your hardest interview? Well, probably one of the very first ones I did, and that was Van Morrison. Oh well, that's, oh, well that's yeah, no sure. surprise. You know, <laughs> yeah. Van, yeah, you're you're allowed you're allowed that. Yeah, I was, it was hilarious <laughs> though because um, because I I was such a massive Van Morrison fan. I mean, I love them. 
here comes the night and glory and all of that. But I mean, once we got to Astral Weeks, I was just... Uh, yeah, it's so perfume garden that, isn't it? It's so beautiful. A sweet <laughs> thing. And yes, it's very perfume garden. And then, of course, uh, Into the Mystic and then St. Dominic's Preview. And I was thinking the beauty of this man's music. And uh, of course, you weren't, as I say, we weren't exposed to the artists in the way then that we are now. I hadn't met Van before. I hadn't seen him be interviewed. And he came in with a couple of guys from his band, sat down and uh, refused to look at me, (laughs) refused to answer any of my questions. Uh, We grunted approximately in my direction a couple of times but had it not been for him having his band with him or the two guys from the band John Pretania was one of them the the the, the interview the, there wouldn't have been anything about this interview that we could use at all and I, I was I, I remember being really quite amazed not to say shocked that he would come in and to be interviewed but not engage with the interview in any way <laughs> i did meet john platania a little while later a few years later and asked him about this and he said well van didn't want to be interviewed he didn't want to do the interview but he didn't want to miss it <laughs> <laughs> there's quite a lot of your interviews where there's that's the thing with album artists where they're not geared to a public face or anything. there's quite a lot of kind of you know getting blood from a stone because you're, you're always asking people how long you know so how long did the album take to make we recorded for three weeks, and then we had two weeks off, and then we did another two weeks. I know. Recording. I can't believe it. <laughs> it's like how often, amazing. <laughs> I honestly can't believe how often I ask that question to almost everybody. How long did the album take you? You know, as if, as if that actually really matters. Well, I, I was fascinated. <laughs> I hope we're not keeping you. I hope we're not keeping you too long, Bob. I, oh I, no, I'm enjoying saying, it. Wonderful world oh, we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, now. but this is this is heaven. This is heaven. The, the, the other great thing that the, the whistle test uh, exposed me to and uh, and 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 utilised was was a lot of the old silent movie clips. Yeah. And I know that came to a guy yeah. called Peter uh, Jenkinson, Philip Jenkinson. And there was something about taking the modern culture, absolute contemporary culture, and merging it with 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 the old 1920s silent movies that gave it great validation. Yes, it was a needs must. This was, you know, as we said, this was before the days of video. I mean, one could discuss for ages, what do we think was the first ever video, promo promo video? Beatles, probably. I would say Strawberry Fields Forever. It was the one where... What about Because We Love You by the Stones? Yeah, you know, we could talk about that all day. Yeah, 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 no, yeah, sorry. But, but, but... Shall we? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, shall we? Let's let's do that. Yeah, forget the time. Uh, I mean, obviously, Bohemian Rhapsody was the one that, that that brought all the elements into focus. And from then on, people could see the power of it. But prior to that, um, if we wanted to play a track from, let's say, the new Jackson Brown album, let's say, he was in America, uh, unless footage existed of the performance, which was very, very unlikely. We've got this album track. How do we illustrate that this is a tv program after all so we had to find some way of bringing that track to life visually now so whistle test came out of a a strip of programs called late night lineup it was an arts strip that went across 
late evening on BBC Two. Arena. Yeah, that's right. And there was a, you know, there was a theatre night, there was a film night, and the guy who hosted the film night was Philip Jenkinson. And he had an incredible library of, of old films, you know, celluloid films. And so Mike would give him a track from the new Steve Miller Band album or who, whoever it was. And uh, Philip would go off and match it, match that track to some little bit of film that he would find in his archive. And nine times out of 10, the combination was incredible. I mean, he had an instinctive way of finding exactly the right piece of film for that particular track. I mean, even as we're talking, I can I can remember immediately Mike Oldfield, Tubular Bells. The skiers. With the skiers. Keep Yourself Alive by Queen with with that rushing steam train. Well, the other thing I really remember is is when you used cartoons. Yeah. When you used old cartoons, because there was something about, because you'd never seen these cartoons anywhere else, it made the cartoons themselves seem sort of psychedelic and subversive. Yeah. Like they were made. Mickey Mouse cartoons. That's right. Yeah. When rap and hip hop came to the fore in the early 80s, again, for the kind of a similar reason, they hadn't, we hadn't yet got into sort of mass video production, as it were. They were doing the same thing. They were using old film in much the yeah, same yeah. way. And uh, there's a direct link between whistle tests and what we were doing and what the rappers then did in the early 80s, because they, they literally took the idea. And, and one of the key stepping stones for them in terms of doing that was a uh, track that we used by Cheech and Chong, Basketball Jones, it was called. Oh, I remember oh, yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. And that was sensational, that, that, yeah. that, that film. There was also um, a Frank Zappa film for City of, of Tiny Lights, which was the, um, um, the Plasticine models and, yes. and Plasticine City. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and of course, Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. Yeah, the journey to the dark side of the moon. Oh. And one of these oh. days, yeah. Oh, but didn't you have, there was the Ian Eames, did you use the Ian Eames film? That's right. Of all the, of the dancers, the animation. Yeah. Which we used, actually. We used it on the last David Gilmore solo tour. Again, you know, Mike and I, I used to spend a lot of time just hanging out in the, in the, in the, in the office with Mike. And we got a film through from, I think it was Birmingham University. Anyway, from a student who'd become a big Whistle Test fan and had been working on this little piece of animation. It was only about five or six minutes uh, for one of these days, which he sent to us and we loved it. I mean, it was so interesting, so colourful and the perspectives and the figures going between the, the, the you know, the skyscraper buildings and, and, and then it would all swish on its side. And it was, it was, it was brilliant. So we got in touch with him. Literally, Mike phoned him up and said, could we use this on, on the show? And it, I mean, he was over the moon about that. So we put it out on the show and Rick, Rick Wright was watching. My father-in-law. The show that night. And, and Rick phoned us the following day and um, said, who is it that, that, that has done this? We love it. So we introduced Ian to the band. Oh, wow. And then, of course, he created their visual on the huge circular screen behind the band uh, that yeah. represented the journey to the dark side of the moon. And we were all of us at the Rainbow Theatre that night where the band put their instruments down, walked away from the stage and left 
the journey showing Ian, Mike, me, we were there uh, on that very, very first night when they performed Dark Side of the Moon. And it, wow, it, it, wow, it, wow, it was wow. sensational. It really was. And Ian, I talked to Ian about this not that very long ago, and he was saying the sense of pride uh, and excitement that he felt that night, you know, it's indescribable. We've got to talk about some of the uh, controversies, uh, Bob, as well, obviously. And um, I mean, you know, Guy mentioned Lady Tron and Roxy Music the other day, and uh, and, and uh, earlier, I mean, it seems like the other day. <laughs> 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 so so we, we started on Tuesday morning, and it's now and Thursday then, afternoon. Yeah. Hang on, I've got to stop for a second. So I need to mow the grass. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Your famous mock rock uh, comment, which I remember seeing live as as, as it went out. And uh, are there what was the Roxy music? Well, I'm not even sure. But are there regrets, or do you think this all added to the uh, you know the 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 trustworthy opinion that we were meant to have of you? Oh gosh, uh, there's a contradiction in in my answer to that. I think um, you know when when I first started on Whistle Test, I assumed when I first walked in the door that as the presenter of the show, I would be choosing the music on the show because that's what I'd always done on my radio programmes. So when I got to Whistle Test and realised actually it was Mike that was choosing everything, I said to Mike, but what, you know, what happens if I'm introducing something I don't like? And I always remember he looked at me and said, well, that's the challenge, Robert. Because he always used to call me Robert. That's the challenge, oh. Robert, he said. Right, OK. And so New York Dolls and um, uh, Roxy Music, uh, New York Dolls, first of all. I'd been brought up on the Stones, of course. And um, so when the New York Dolls came in and were very New York Dolls, I just thought that they were, uh, they were like the Stones. They, they were like a sort of glam rock version of the Stones. And the David Johansson was Mick Jagger, he really was. And so the yeah, yeah. phrase that I coined to express my feelings were, was mock rock. Yeah, Johnny was Keith, wasn't he? Yes, he was. What I got wrong was I, I was I slightly sort of sneeringly superior in my in my in my view. And so, but as I say, I, I was still learning the job at that point, and it, it gradually pennies did drop that I my role wasn't and shouldn't be that of, of a John Landau, one of the rock critics or Chris Salovich or... Real Marcus. You, yeah. you know. Tony Wilson made an entire career out of it later on. Yeah, but it was, that's not, that wasn't what I was there to do. And for a moment or two, I got a bit carried away with the idea that I, I should be one of those rock critics as well. So it was just, I got that wrong. I didn't get the description wrong, but I got the attitude with which I delivered it wrong let's put it that way yeah, but it shows the importance of the show doesn't it that yeah, one little yeah. remark like that becomes so historic we're talking about it nearly 50 years later it's unbelievable and of course i, I david johansson and i got to know each other quite a bit then subsequently and he came into uh, my show on glr in the mid 90s so we're talking 20 years later and he said what a huge bonus it had been for me to describe them that way because it gave them news and notoriety and yeah, they yeah. were able to build their fan base on that notoriety. If the BBC bans a record, that record's it's almost certainly going to go yeah. to number one. And so my reaction provided them with that kind of, uh, you know, Roxy Music, funny, Roxy oh, Music yeah, though, was an entirely different kettle of fish because 
Um, I worked with Roxy Music a few weeks before they came into Whistle Test. They did a uh, an in-concert program uh, for Radio One, which I hosted. And they were awful. <laughs> they, they, they were so arrogant. It was beyond belief. Even before they got a fan base, they, they were mocking their fans uh, uh, as, as being sort of idiots. They, they, they didn't care about the people who cared about their music. At that moment, it may have changed later, but at that moment, they, they really didn't care at all. And I think that the um, phrase that I, I, I had in my mind was, um, uh, what was it? All gloss and no substance, you know, all style and no substance. That was, uh, I accepted Brian Eno from, from that observation at the time, but I was very cross with Roxy Music for being so obnoxious. And I, I kind of let that show on, on, on the programme. And even to this day, I mean, I remember Mark Radcliffe not long ago saying, he's never forgiven me <laughs> for, for being so obnoxious about Roxy Music. Um, well, having played for Roxy Music myself, I must say I'm taking it rather personally. <laughs> we, didn't know, we didn't know the backstory though, did we? No, no. No, no I, but I hope you're not taking it personally. It's not. Of course not. It's, of course it's not, not meant personally now. And it wasn't. No, but it's, it's great because look at it now, because in the context of history, it's, an, it's incredibly brave. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Oh, I used to have uh, roadies standing over me, threatening me to ask, asking me to change this bit of script where I haven't been very complimentary about their band. Did it bug you? Because the elite bands, right? Your Led Zeppelins, your your Pink Floyd's, your uh, your Stones, they'd grace you with sending someone for an interview, but they'd never actually play. No, it didn't bother me at all. And in fact, we had no. more access uh, to them than pretty much anybody else. I mean, particularly Led Zeppelin. You know, Peter Grant was a massive fan of Whistle Test, and um, uh, he used to give Mike a call whenever anything was happening with the band. You know, we'd be the first to know about it. And he'd always say, do you want to come over and in interview one of the guys? And it would almost always be Robert, uh, which is where my friendship with Robert first started, right. you know. So, and the same with the Stones. We went out to Munich on their European tour. I would... In in introduce their concerts everywhere we 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 had really good access no they didn't come in and, and play in the studio i will say that uh but the facilities weren't really capable stadium you know <laughs> of, 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 of delivering what it was that they would want to do i, I felt they probably had more to lose by getting if the sound wasn't great yeah. or there was something yeah. but, but what they did know is yeah. is your because of focus and hocus pocus is this would sell a lot of records this program yeah. so get on there, but play safe yeah. and let's just talk quickly about your run-in with the punks bob because you know i felt there was something rather unfair about that because you were an album show yeah but there was this big kind of yeah. hoo-ha why you weren't putting the Sex Pistols on. Yeah, and, and I could understand it, you know. I mean, when I started, when, when punk first came through, you know, well, just, just wind the clock back a year and a half, maybe, and I was out at all those venues. I remember being at the Hope and Anchor and seeing Dr. Feelgood for the first time. The atmosphere was just unbelievable. It was crazy mad magic. Um, and, and, and Wilco, you know, Patrolling the stage. They were, and, they were on the old yeah. Grove. They were. Yeah, they yeah. were. Well, again, that's that's a seminal. That's a seminal feel goods performance. Yeah, it's yeah. like it's one of you know. Someone says, "Doctor Feelgood." That's one of the things you think of. Yeah, and and again, going back to the early days of rock and roll, when you think that 
the energy of rock and roll came from two minute singles. You know, there was there was very little in the charts that lasted more than about two minutes, 20 seconds in 1958, because it was floor to tape, bam, you were capturing that performance and that energy. That's the lightning in the bottle. Now, with for all the good reasons of, of, of music becoming more imaginative and stretching out more and albums becoming more and more important, what also happened was that there was an increasing amount of, of just air being pumped into the grandiose schemes of, of concept albums and, and uh, uh, per performance lights, modules, things coming down onto the stage. I'm thinking Barclay James Harvest all of a in, sudden. In dry ice, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, you know. Well, I remember seeing Yes at Madison Square Garden and uh, that, that the production of the stage show was just beyond belief. In its way, it was it was pushing the boundaries, but it it was taking us further and further away from the roots of rock and roll. Yeah. So punk reintroduced the idea of the of the two minute single quite rightly too. I mean, I remember uh, hearing the damn New Rose for the first time and thinking that's one of the best records I've heard since since the yeah, punk. it still is yeah, sensational yeah. record. Um, but all these records were coming out on indie labels as singles. And it was the strict demarcation line that the BBC had imposed on us was that um, we were the singles programme and uh, yeah, I yeah. the album programme rather. Yeah. So I was distracted because I was wondering, I was wondering what are your- I had to let my dog out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were the album programme. Just given birth. <laughs> 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 uh, Top of the Pops was the, the, the singles show. So yeah. we were not allowed to touch singles. So here's the, here's, here's, here's the punk bus drawing, drawing up at our stop. And we're standing there at, at the stop, sort of going, dum de dum de dum we can't get on you yet. And, and then the bus goes off down the road, by which time one or two of the bands are now beginning to go into the studio to make albums. And once they began to do that, we could begin to reflect this new music. You're avoiding the fight. We want to know about the fight. So I was... <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I mean, the number of times I've talked about this over the years... Uh, uh, well, one more time won't hurt. Get yeah. used to it, mate. Get used to it. it come it, on. I mean, it was 45 <laughs> years ago. It's incredible. Anyway, so I'd been working at... Because uh, I did quite a lot of record production in the mid-70s. And I'd been working at Morgan Studios with a friend of mine, George Nicholson. And uh, we were driving back through the West End and um, I, I used to love popping into the speakeasy, uh, with di the dive that it was. Uh, and so I said to George, let's just pop into the speakeasy. This was, this was the day that the Pistols had signed for A&M and they'd been down the offices at New Kings Road, sort of uh, fueling up basically and doing what one discovered later was about three and a half thousand pounds of the damage to the, the offices down there. And then they'd all piled into the speakeasy. So uh, we, we got there and as we walked in, we were met by a guy called Jim Diamond, who Jim was- in, Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was in PhD. Was a great singer, yeah. Great singer. singer. And he said, Bob, the, the, I don't know whether this is a good idea. You know, the Sex Pistols are, are in the, just through in the, the restaurant. Okay, well, I said to George, let's just have one drink and then and then we'll go. We're here now, you know, as well. So what can possibly go wrong? So we're at the bar and this guy comes over, he's wearing a green boiler suit. 
and said to, to me, you know, when are the pistols going to be on the old grey whistle test? So I, it, this was about 11 o'clock on a Friday evening. And that's actually what I said. I said, it's, you know, it's 11 o'clock, it's Friday evening. If I'm going to be in the office on Monday. Why don't you give me a call? I, sort of halfway through saying this. And he, he sort of threw, swung this massive great haymaker at me, which I sort of missed me by a button because he was so, so out of it. <laughs> uh, and, but it was, it was the trigger. And suddenly all hell broke loose, you know. I, I just couldn't believe this. Well, sudden... Did someone start playing the piano? Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the fight ensued, you know, just, just every, it seemed that everybody in front of me was piling in. And I, and I got I got pulled around the other side. I don't know whether you remember the layout of the Speakeasy Club. You, you'd go down into the basement through reception and then the bar would be on your left. The um, restaurant would be on the right. If you kept going through, the stage would be ahead of you with a sort of dance floor area. And then the other side of the bar, you couldn't leave the other side of the bar. Uh, that had a wall. Once you were the other side of the bar, the only way back out was to come back out the way you come, uh, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I got pulled around the other side of the bar. And um, I now have probably half a dozen, maybe a dozen people coming towards me with, with broken bottles, broken glasses oh and I am now backing myself up against the wall because I think I'm going to die and uh and of course I, I I'm I'm going I'm doing I'm like uh guys what, what do you think you've got uh this is do, yeah, what are you going to gain from this I'm trying to talk my way out of this and I've got these wide-eyed and out of nowhere a whole load of guys get in between them and me I discover later that in the most symbolic of possible situations, this is the Procol Harum road crew that, that, that comes to my, to save me from the new generation. That's why you should always be good to your crew. Absolutely. So I got kicked and I got cut and I got, you know, but it, it was wow. nothing like as bad as it could have been. And then I got surrounded by, oh, 20, 30 people. I was like, were acting as human shields to get me out, back around and out to reception where I now found George, my friend George, recording engineer George, who had had um, a bottle in his face. Oh, wow. And it, he got yeah. a cut from here all the way to the back of his head. He was, he was covered, he as good as passed out in, in reception. He was completely covered in blood. Oh. The floor was covered oh. in blood. Um, and we had to get us out, get him to hospital. And um, I was driving George. We got him up into my car because apparently, you know, what had then happened was that uh, everybody at the speakeasy had called, had got in touch with their friends at, at the 100 Club and other, the Roxy and other places nearby. And punk, it, people were descending on that block in Market Street which then was cordoned off by the police. I mean, we only sort of just got, oh, wow. oh it was, it was, it was massive. It was a massive thing. Uh, made the front page of the weekend newspapers and everything, you know, so, but I then had to get George to hospital and I'm looking at George, you know, blood all over us, uh, thinking, wait, I didn't sign up for this in any way whatsoever. This is not, yeah, yeah. but when you think about it, I was absolutely everything. I was the, that they hated. I was the, the definitive coconut on the shy because I was yeah. white, 30 years old, long hair, ex-hippie, BBC, 
you know, middle class. But you're also an icon of a particular genre and period of music that we still hold so dear to this day, which does make you a total national treasure. You know that that's an overused yeah, yeah. phrase, but it, you, you, you really are. And I think they probably all regret it to this day and are ashamed of themselves <laughs> yeah, yeah. forever true. thinking they could bring you down. <laughs> You're a great advocate of, of new music. And unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap this up, Bob, because we've kept you and my dog is waiting to go out now. Uh, <laughs> but uh, this has you been... You can't so... use that as a reason. For no, it no, no, no. The reason, the, reason is, the, reason, the reason is our producer is nodding. Yeah. Uh, but it's been stunning. It just has been amazing. Amazing. Well, thank you. I mean, I can sit and talk to you all day about the Augustist. I feel that, you know, if I if I had a Desert Island DVD of any kind, to, to, to you know, I was only allowed one, it would be the greatest hits of the old Grey Whistle Test. That, that, Bob, I do want to tell you that you are actually one of the reasons probably behind this podcast, because when Gary and I went on tour with the Nick Mason's Source Full of Secrets, I brought the box set of the old Grey Whistle Test. I thought it would be great bus viewing. And we just sat on the bus and just talking, of course, having Nick's view on all these bands and everything it was so great. And we just realized that our favorite thing, apart from playing music, is just talking about music. And so here we are. So yeah. thank you for that. Well, also, I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? The way the Whistle <laughs> Test has sort of sustained through the years that uh, the 50th anniversary uh, of the show is coming up uh, in a few days' time. And BBC Four are re-showing the For One Night Only show that went out three or four years ago that celebrated Whistle Test. And, you know, I have to say that it's it's a long time ago now. And yes, the, the end part of it was an unexpectedly sort of bumpy ride. But I'm so proud of the legacy of the programme. I really am. You know, I'm so proud of what we did. I'm really, really proud to have been associated with Mike Appleton, who was the he was the founder. He was the, the sort of godfather of Whistle Test, really. And Mike really believed in me, supported me. You know, it was an incredible experience to be at that cutting edge at that time. And also, you know, to be parachuted down into a world of rock and roll that I could hardly have imagined a few years earlier. Mm -hmm. You know, to be spending time in America, on the West Coast in particular, you know, with, with artists that I, I absolutely loved and to be part of their world and accepted into their world, you know, and, and be able to reflect their world on screen in the way that we did do. I mean, talk about being privileged and lucky beyond belief. I, I had a laminate into a world I could never dream of, you know. Wow, that was something, wasn't it, Guy? That was really something that was like, it was like, you know, that there's that lovely old picture, a uh, famous old painting of this sort of the seaman sitting, pointing out, and there's the two adoring children sitting at his feet, listening to the stories yeah. of yeah. staring down but, the high seas. And that was just like that, you know, because he mean, was such a father figure to us. But he was, I mean, he was Moses bringing the, the bringing yeah. down the, 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 the stuff from the mountain or whatever, you know. The tablets. Know. The tablets, thank you. There probably were a lot of tablets in the 70s. Yes. <laughs> anyway, thank you for listening. Uh, we're going to be back next week with another great star that we adore, we all adore. Uh, and, 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 and any questions you might have, you can always put them up on Twitter. Um, or, or, or you can't because you don't know who we're interviewing. Oh, no, or Instagram, no, questions for us, I mean. Oh, questions for us. Oh, right. oh yes. Uh, and then maybe we could, we could pull a few out and, and answer them in our intro next week or something. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that'd be nice. Yeah, and it's good night from him, me. And it's good night from me. 
Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.